And maybe today I'll go <clears throat> shake things up a little bit. 1 Samuel chapter 26. And let's go ahead and stand ourselves. And we normally stand, and I'm glad for that, but let me just give you a heads up. I'm going to read a lengthy section this morning, so if you need to sit, uh, please do not hesitate to do so. 1 Samuel chapter 26, beginning in verse number 1, is our passage this morning. And the Ziphites came unto Saul to Gibeah, saying, Doth not David hide himself in the hill of Hekelah, which is before Jeshimon? Then Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having three thousand chosen men of Israel with him, to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul pitched in the hill of Hekelah, which is before Jeshimon, by the way. But David abode in the wilderness, and he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul was come in very deed. And David arose and came to the place where Saul had pitched. And David beheld the place where Saul lay. And Abner the son of Ner, the captain of his host, and Saul lay in the trench, and the people pitched round about him. Then answered David and said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Abishai the son of Zeruiah, brother to Joab, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul to the camps? And Abishai said, I will go down with thee. So David and Abishai came to the people by night. And behold, Saul lay sleeping within the trench, and his spear stuck in the ground at his bolster. But Abner and the people lay round about him. Then said Abishai to David, God hath delivered thine enemy into thine hand this day. Now therefore let me smite him, I pray thee, with the spear even to the earth at once, and I will not smite him the second time. And David said to Abishai, Destroy him not, for who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, Furthermore, as the Lord liveth, The Lord shall smite him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall descend into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch forth mine hand against the Lord's anointed. But I pray thee, take thou now the spear that is at his bolster, and the cruise of water, and let us go. So David took the spear and cruise of water from Saul's bolster, and they got them away, and no man saw it. Nor knew it, neither awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord was fallen upon them. Then David went over to the other side and stood on the top of a hill afar off, a great space being between them. And David cried to the people and to Abner the son of Ner, saying, Answerest thou not, Abner? Then Abner answered and said, Who art thou that criest to the king? And David said to Abner, Are not thou a valiant man? And who is like to thee in Israel? Wherefore then hast thou not kept thy lord the king? For there came one of the people in to destroy the king thy lord. This thing is not good that thou hast done as the Lord liveth. Ye are worthy to die 
because ye have not kept your master, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the cruise of water that was at his bolster. And Saul knew David's voice and said, Is this thy voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Wherefore doth my lord thus pursue after his servant? For what have I done? Or what evil is in mine hand? Now therefore I pray thee, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If the Lord hath stirred thee up against me, let him accept an offering. But if they be the children of men, cursed be they before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day from abiding in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. Now therefore let not my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. For the king of Israel is come out to seek a flea, as when one doth hunt a partridge in the mountains." Then said Saul, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do thee harm, because my soul was precious in thine eyes this day. Behold, I have played the fool and have erred exceedingly. And David answered and said, Behold the king's spear. Let one of the young men come over and fetch it. The Lord render to... Sorry, I can't get the page turned. The Lord render to every man his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered thee into my hand today, but I would not stretch forth mine hand against the Lord's anointed. And behold, as thy life was much set by this day in mine eyes, so let my life be much set by in the eyes of the Lord, and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. And Saul said to David, Blessed be thou, my son David, Thou shalt both do great things and also shalt still prevail. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. And David said in his heart, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape into the land of the Philistines. And Saul shall despair of me to seek me any more in any coast of Israel so shall I escape out of his hand. And David arose, and he passed over with the six hundred men that were with him unto Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David dwelt with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, even David with his two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the Carmelitess, Nabal's wife. And it was told Saul that David was fled to Gath, and he sought no more again for him. And let's pray. Father, how precious are your words to us, and and I pray your help this morning. I pray that you would use your word, your words, in the lives of your people to help them. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. I've been taking our Sunday mornings recently and giving some consideration to the subject matter of forgiveness. There is, of course, a theology to it. It is a huge theological component. God has forgiven us of our sins. God has forgiven us of our sins by placing his wrath and our guilt 
upon Jesus Christ, His Son, who He crucified, thus satisfying His righteous demand, and then He raised Christ from the dead. And now in Christ we have forgiveness. That, of course, not only becomes a precious truth to us, but it becomes the basis for our thinking. Whenever the subject matter of forgiveness comes up, I am to operate from the basis that God graciously forgave me. He had no obligation to. We did never approach the situation in any way as equals. He is completely guiltless in all of his doings. I am the offender, and yet he was gracious to me, and I am to be gracious to you. But how that plays out in reality is something that even the best of people struggle with. And we'll deal specifically with this, but we are people of emotions and feelings. And there are times when all the facts in the world will not budge us from our feelings. And so I want to take a few weeks and try and approach the subject matter from that position. I could provide you sermon upon sermon and Bible lesson upon Bible lesson about the structure and the theology of forgiveness and the way that God has forgiven us in Christ. But over the next few weeks, let's look at some real-life examples. This story doesn't fit the classic offense-forgiven pattern, but I would suggest that it is rich in helping us to understand the way we ought to be thinking about those who are injurious to us. And I've titled this, A Believer's Response in the Heat of the Moment. Lord willing, next Sunday, we will go to the life of Joseph and look at a man who is reflecting upon a past injury. They look perhaps a little different in retrospect than they do in the moment. But here is a man in the heat of the battle. And his very life is at stake. While he was just a teenage boy, we know the story. God chose him to become the next king. David never sought to become a king. David never wrangled to become a king. He never committed any intrigue to be the king. He never set out to put himself in competition with his king. And in fact, folks, I would suggest to you that in the entirety of the Bible story about David and Saul, that the only offense that David could ever possibly be accused of committing is the fact that God has chosen him to be Saul's replacement. God had picked Saul... And God had proclaimed that he was going to replace Saul. And God is going to replace Saul with David. And as the reality of that truth 
becomes ever more apparent to Saul. Saul, who I would argue, we could debate this forever, but I would argue that Saul is an unbeliever. Saul responds as unbelievers will respond with vicious vengeance and a determination to exterminate his foe. The story of David and Saul then is a lengthy one in the Bible narrative. And we are just looking at one portion of their conflict today. I do want to make a bit of a disclaimer at the outset. I try very hard and very carefully to avoid the encroachment of modern day psychology into the Bible message. I tend to try and use Bible language rather than psychological language. But the reality is that we are people of feelings and emotions. And whatever way we want to describe fear, people have always been afraid. Whatever way we want to describe worry, people have always been worried. And so it is inescapable as we look at interaction between human beings that we see some dimension of the way they think. And the way they think then colors the way they act. David might not use the same kind of language that we would use. But David knew what it was to be criticized, threatened, rejected, and pursued. And so it is David's attitudes about this that I wish for us to consider. The passage revolves, if we were trying to map it out structurally and put it into an outline form, Verses 1 through 5 are setting the stage for us. Once again, David is running and once again, Saul is chasing. David has 600 followers. Saul comes with an army of 3,000. What follows then are three distinct conversations. That would be how we would tell the story. And Verses 6 through 12, there is a conversation between David and Abishai. Abishai is the brother of Joab, the head of his armies. In verses 13 to 16, there's a conversation between David and Abner. Abner is the head of Saul's army. And in verses 17 through 25, there is a conversation between David and Saul. So David is talking, and in talking, David is revealing the way he thinks. And the way he thinks is driving the way he acts. There is one constant symbol that goes throughout the three conversations, and that is Saul's spear. Although we have three distinct conversations, we never get away from the spear. Abishai wants to kill Saul with it. David takes it, and David returns it. These symbolic gestures. 
So what I wish to do this morning, if I may be so brazen, is to come to the text and extract from it some of the attitudes that David has, and I want to pose them in questions to us, the modern-day hearer. The first question that I would ask you is, who are you? Who are you? When David hears word that Saul has come and David sends out his scouts to see what's going on, he asks a question in verse number 6, who will go with me? Who will sneak with me into the camp of 3,000 soldiers? And you can get the idea from the way the text is mapped out that what they did is they Saul is kind of in the middle and all of the men are in concentric circles around him. He is protected by sleeping literally in the middle of 3,000 men. Abishai volunteers to go, believing that this is a mission of execution, that David's plan is to sneak into the camp and kill Saul. And in fact, Abishai advocates for that very activity. All I need is one blow, and I will run him through with the spear, drive that spear right through him down into the dirt, and I will not need to do it the second time, and that'll be the end of this. But that is not David, verse number nine. But that is not David. David said, Destroy him not, for who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And we know enough about David, folks, and we even have the biblical testimony. God himself says of David that he is a warrior. We know that David has waged war against wild animals successfully. We know that David went to battle against Goliath successfully. We know that David's sword is not a decoration piece, but a well-used weapon. He knows how to kill people. He knows how to defend himself. But David is never, never willing to resort to murder to protect himself or advance his cause. With one exception, Uriah the Hittite. Part of what makes the whole situation with Uriah so gruesome is that this is something David has steadfastly refused to do. When it's his own son in rebellion against the kingdom, don't kill him. When it's Shimei cursing him and throwing dirt, don't kill him. When it's Saul on a mission to execute him, don't kill him. Don't kill him. Who can do this and be guiltless? Have you ever had an enemy like Saul? Has anybody ever hated you the way Saul hated David? Has anybody ever devoted their life to doing you wrong? Saul is the king of an entire country. He is absolutely consumed with hatred for David. 
Who are you? And here's what I'm getting at, folks. If we're believers, we are supposed to be certain kinds of people. This is not an exhaustive list, but let me give you some of the items that are prohibited from the thinking and acting of Christians. Hatred. Variance, which means fighting. Emulations, which means zealous jealousy. Wrath. Strife. Heresy which really has the idea of division. you got to pick, me or you, A or B. Bill or Bob, got to pick one. Envy, bitterness, clamor, which means noise, evil speaking. These things are supposed to fall into the realm of, they don't even cross the realm of possibility of conduct. We will not indulge them in our thoughts. We will not give vent to them in our actions. They are off limits for us. Who are you? I'm not asking it as a psychological question. I'm asking it as a theological question. Are you a believer? Are you really a believer? The first thing to note about David, folks, is that David did not lose David. What a golden opportunity. So tired of running. So tired of looking over his shoulder. So tired of dealing with Saul. So tired that every attempt to prove his loyalty is only met with more anger and hatred and bitterness. Abishai is right. If we just pin him to the ground right here, it'll be all over. But David is David. Can't do it. Can't do it. Governed not simply by his conscience, but by the scriptures, who will, who will rise up against the Lord's anointed? And if we think, well, the person I'm in conflict with isn't God's anointed, probably not in that sense, but I would make two qualifying observations for you there. First of all, all believers have an anointing. And secondly, God is the avenger of all of his people. He doesn't look favorably upon us going after other Christians. So there's first question. Who are you? The second question, <clears throat> who is God? Who is, is, there, is there, maybe, I remember my pastor, our home pastor, and I spent a lot of time with him, but <clears throat> he told me one day I got to, we would go to lunch on Tuesdays and make some calls or do some visits, whatever he had to do. And I, I went to the church and we got in the car to go to lunch and he told me the member's name. And he said, I, he said, I don't remember what I said yesterday or Sunday, he said, but she called me Monday morning and asked me, do you believe in God? the question every pastor wants to have asked who is God verse number 10 and 11 David said furthermore right who's David 
verse number 9. I'm not the kind of guy to kill him. Who is God? Verse number 10. As the Lord liveth, the Lord shall smite him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall descend into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch forth mine hand against the Lord's anointed. But I pray thee, take now the spear that is at his bolster and the cruise of water and let us go. Who is God? If we read backwards, we would have just prior to this read the account of Nabal. David and his 600 men were living in the wilderness away from Saul because Saul was determined to kill David. And One of the things that they were doing was providing protection to the shepherds. And Saul or Nabal had a big operation and David and some of his men went and protected him. Now you could make the case that Nabal didn't ask for the protection, but David didn't ask much in return. David was ready to kill Nabal. But God killed Nabal instead. Chapter 25, verse number 34, Abigail was the reason that he did not. And he would go on to marry Abigail. In 1 Samuel 25, 38, it came to pass about 10 days after that the Lord smote Nabal that he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord that hath pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and hath kept his servant from evil. For the Lord hath returned the wickedness of Nabal upon his own head. To go back to 1 Samuel 26.10, David, right? I mean, here are two men, folks, and this is part of the point I'm trying to Two men having a conversation about what to do. And Abishai says, this is easy. Let's just kill him. And David said, can't kill him. God won't let me kill him. But God might kill him. And that's what he says, folks. But God might kill him. If you look at verse number 10, David is running through the options. The Lord shall smite him. And there are people in the Bible that God has just killed. When Aaron's two sons offered strange fire before the Lord, God just killed them. In Genesis 38, Ur and Onan were wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he just killed them. They just fell over dead. When Ananias and Sapphira lied to God about their giving, he just killed them. They just fell over dead. And it may be that God will just kill Saul. Of course, another scenario in David's mind is this. His day shall come to die. He'll live to a ripe old age. And he'll see his children and his grandchildren. And he will sit in the rocking chair and hold them and reminisce about his days as the king. Or it may be that he will just die in battle. 
which is, of course, what happens, kind of. But in verse number 11, David is emphatic, right? I don't know what God is going to do with Saul. Maybe he'll just kill him. And maybe he'll just die of old age. And maybe he'll die on the battlefield. Don't know. But I know this, verse number 11, it's not going to be me. I'm not going to kill him. That's what I know. I'm not going to kill him. God is righteous and can do anything he wants, but I'm not going to kill him. Who are we? Right? We have been injured. We have been wounded. We have an enemy. We have an adversary. Who are we? Folks, if we do not establish at the very beginning, if we are not training ourselves regularly who we are in Christ, then we will never handle the rest of it well. Who are we? Who is God? Who is God? Does he see this? Does he know what to do? Does he have a plan? The Bible assures us in many places that God is able to execute vengeance and he will do so in his time. And I will make the case, by the way, next week that it is not always as cut and dried as it is in the case of David and Saul. But there's not one thing that David has ever done or say, said that would give us any indication that he ever had anything other than the highest degree of respect for Saul and loyalty to him. Do we trust the Lord? And just as I would say to you, don't lose yourself, know what it is to be a Christian, know what is expected of a Christian, be a believer, who are you? I would say secondly, don't lose the Lord. God is the executor of vengeance. God, God doesn't miss any wrongs. He's not, he, he, he didn't blink and something happened that he missed. He is aware. Which brings me to the third question. Why not get on with just serving the Lord with the life you have? After David screams and after God removes the deepness of sleep and Saul is awakened, they have what appeared to be a moment of reconciliation. David assures Saul that he's only had his best intentions at heart and Saul assures David that he's never going to come after him again. And one of the reasons, folks, that I read us into chapter 27, verses 1 through 4, is that the text of Scripture is very clear that David did not really believe one word of it. Right? He gets all done after Saul makes this big impassioned apology and plea, and David goes, he is still going to kill me. 
he is still going to kill me. And the only thing to do is to get out of the way. I think realistically, folks, and again, I'm not trying to analyze David psychologically. I don't do those kinds of things. But I think that the text of Scripture leads us to indicate that David is at a pretty low point. That David acts, perhaps in not the best way, by going to the land of the Philistines. by being deceptive about what he's doing while he's there. As one commentator pointed out, it is one thing to be assured, it is quite another thing to feel that assurance. Saul assured David, but David didn't really feel it. My point is simply this. Let go of Saul. Let go of Saul. It is not uncommon for people to become consumed with other people and their offenses. To just have them totally dominate their mind. And as I said last week, folks, I think the scripture is very clear that if we do that, we will be the ultimate casualty. Do not lose yourself. Do not lose yourself. Who are you in Christ? Do not lose God. Who is he? But do let go of Saul. Chapter 26, verse number 25. Saul said to David, Blessed be thou, my son David. Thou shalt both do great things and shall also shall still prevail. Saul knew what was going to happen. He was resisting the inevitable. So David went on his way and Saul returned to his place. Why not get on with serving the Lord with the life that you have? Why not just serve the Lord? Why carry the grudge? Why nurse the wound? And again, I realize that that may be a lot easier said than done. But I would suggest to you that nobody in the Bible ever found it easy. They just found it mandatory. I'm going to elaborate on this a little bit more this evening, folks, but part of the Lord's chastening, we know the Lord chastens us. Despise not thou the chastening of the Lord. And sometimes that chastening is 
corrective in nature. In other words, sometimes it, to, for, for lack of a better, more simple analogy, sometimes it takes the form of God spanking us. And it may be something that he brings to our life or something that he inflicts upon our consciences and God chastens us and we are disciplined and we are hurt and wounded. And... But that is a very narrow band within the world of chastening. Where chastening actually refers to instruction. So that we sit a group of first graders down in a classroom and we go, okay, this, right? The teacher gets a a piece of chalk or a marker and goes, this is the letter A. Now you do it. Write the letter A. All right, now let's do it again. Write the letter A. Okay, let's do it again. Write the letter A. And we fill a sheet of paper with the letter A. And then we come back the next day and we write more A's. We write A's until writing A's is second nature to us. We have been chastened. We have been instructed. And here's all I'm saying, folks. Part of maturing and developing as a Christian is to anticipate the reality that there are going to be conflicts. They should come as no surprise. Why would you ever be surprised that there are conflicts? God has been very upfront with us from the very beginning. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Why would we ever be surprised that we will be disappointed, crushed, wounded, let down? Why should that moment, why should the heat of that moment become the time when we decide how we're going to behave when we are supposed to be in training all the time. I don't hate anybody today. Let me get out my piece of paper and write, no hatred. Because tomorrow there might be somebody to hate, but it's still no hatred. Jason. David hung on to David when Saul... Look, folks, you know as well as I do, if the roles had been reversed, if the tables had been turned, if David had been asleep on the ground and Saul and Abner had showed up with spears, David would be a dead man. But David was David. David was the godly man. And David was the man who knew who God was. And David was the man who let go of Saul. Let's pray. Father... Part of our chastening is the awareness that we might be the actual offender and I pray that you would help us to live circumspectly and cautiously that we would never cause offense. Certainly out of selfish ambition. And then help us to be training ourselves. Learning what it means to be a believer so that when the wounds come and the disappointments come we are prepared 
And may we never ever lose sight of your sovereign sight and great power. Your righteousness to do all things well and at the perfect time. And Father, may we never become consumed with the injuries we have received and the wounds we have suffered, but may we just be good and faithful servants committing all to your hand. I pray this for us in Christ's name. Amen.